good to go. All right. Well, let's begin Sunday school. Welcome back to Sunday school. Good to see you. Literally, it looks like everything has been sorted out now with the service we use and the internet, and my computer. So, Lord willing, it will continue that way in this class. By the way, you may notice the the wall of the Kaposha apartment is a little bit more Christmassy. That's via the skill and innovation of my wife. We're jumping back into our study of creation. Last week, we examined the first four days of creation, and we reached a few important conclusions. First, we saw many reasons why the word day, as used in Genesis 1, must mean a 24-hour period. Second, we considered several objections to the 24-hour view, and we found those objections to be groundless. And third, we saw what happened specifically on those first four days and see if you can remember. What did God do on day one? He created the unfinished heavens and earth. He created time. He created light. And light is specifically highlighted on day one. God divided the light from the darkness and he called them day and night. He made day and night. What is it that God did on day two? God divided the waters, the waters below from the waters below, and he created the expanse that went in between them. And he called the expanse heaven. What is it that God did on day three? I'm giving you a little pause there just for you to think to yourself. What did God do? Well, God gathered the waters below into seas, and he caused the dry land to appear. And then God created all the vegetation on the dry land. And then what did God do on day four? God created all the heavenly bodies, the sun, the moon, the stars, the planets, the galaxies, the nebulae, everything that's in the cosmos. So by the end of day four, what has happened to the world, the world that was described as originally described as unformed and unfilled? By the end of day four, what do we have? We have a formed earth and we have a formed heavens but they're not yet filled and that's what we're going to talk about with day five and six we're going to see how god fills his formed creation and that's going to be with animals and man hence the title of our lesson today here's more specifically what we're going to be looking at together we're going to examine what God did on days five and six, exactly. We're going to look at the, the passage from Genesis 1. We're then going to drill down more closely on what it means to be made in God's image, and we'll consider the meaning and makeup of animal kinds. Now, let's pray now as we go forward. Lord God, we thank you for this, this word that you have shown us via this trustworthy word. What happened in the beginning? Where we come from? And Lord, it has such great implications for our lives today. Not only in being beholden to you as creator, but also in the way we treat one another. I pray that you help me to be able to explain this well and clearly, and that you would work in the hearts of those who hear it today, that they would be blessed, build up, convicted, and all the things that your spirit desires to do. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, it's actually been a while since we've read or heard the actual words of Genesis 1, so we're actually going to do that this morning. So please turn to Genesis 1, and that's where we're going to start we're going to read our passage that has to do with days five and six. So Genesis 1, verses 20 to 31. 
So we're picking up right on the beginning of day five, verse 20. Follow along with me, please. Then God said, let the waters teem with swarms of living creatures and let birds fly above the earth in the open expanse of the heavens. God created the great sea monsters and every living creature that moves with which the waters swarmed after their kind and every winged bird after its kind. And God saw that it was good. God blessed them saying, be fruitful and multiply and fill the water waters in the seas and let birds multiply on the earth. There was evening and there was morning, a fifth day. Then God said, let the earth bring forth living creatures after their kind, cattle and creeping things and beasts of the earth after their kind. And it was so. God made the beasts of the earth after their kind and the cattle after their kind and everything that creeps on the ground after its kind. And God saw that it was good. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness and let them rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. God created man in his own image, in the image of God. He created him male and female. He created them. God blessed them and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and rule over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Then God said, behold, I have given you every plant yielding seed that is on the surface of all the earth and every tree which has fruit yielding seed. It shall be food for you and to every beast of the earth and to every bird of the sky and to everything that moves on the earth, which has life. I have given every green plant for food. And it was so. God saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. All right, well, let's start our study of this passage according to our inductive study method with observations. What is it that God does on day five of creation? God creates all the sea creatures, God creates all the flying creatures, and God blesses them. What does God do on day six of creation? God creates all the land animals. God creates man and woman. God blesses them, and he gives man dominion over all the earth and over all its creatures. And God gives the man and all animals plants to eat as food. Now note the term winged bird or bird in verses 20 to 22. We can think of some examples of what this would include. What what, what did God create when he created birds? Well, that would include owls and gulls and jays and eagles and cranes and hummingbirds, etc. However, though what we call birds is primarily in mind here in the passage, the Hebrew word for bird would include all flying creatures, except for flying insects, because those were considered a creeping or a swarming thing, apparently. And we can see this ourselves, by the way, if we glance over at what uh, list is given to Israel in Leviticus. Uh, the list of unclean birds, those that were forbidden for the Israelites to eat in Leviticus 11, verses 13 to 19. At the very end of the list, we see something interesting. Leviticus 11:19 rounds out the list of birds they're not allowed to eat by saying, and you can't eat the stork, the heron and its kinds, and the hoopoe, and the bat. What? A bat? That's not a bird. Well, it was to the Israelites. 
because of them, a bird was really just a flying creature. This is why I say day five is the creation of all flying creatures, not just what we call birds. So this would include bats. This would include, yes, birds, but it also would include flying dinosaurs like the pterodactyl. Now think about the kinds of sea creatures that would have been created on day five. We get two descriptions in our verses. In verse 21, we get the great sea monsters and every living creature with which the waters swarmed. This is a pretty broad but accurate description of aquatic life. You've got really big creatures like whales, sharks, aquatic dinosaurs. It's actually interesting, the term that's translated sea monster in our text, it may even have the idea of sea dragons, since the term is used later on in the Old Testament to refer to or to describe Leviathan and to describe serpents. It's the same word. But we have these really big creatures in the sea, even being called sea monsters, and then you've got the smaller creatures that frequently swarm. So all kinds of fish and crabs and shrimp and jellyfish and seahorses and otters and seals and dolphins and more. So that's day five. We have the sea creatures. We have the air creatures, the flying creatures. What about on day six? Consider the categories that were given in verses 24 to 25 for the land animals. We first have cattle, a Hebrew word that could refer to animals in general. It could refer to all animals, but it was often used to speak of domesticated herd animals like cows, sheep, horses, camels. We then also have creeping things, which is exactly what it sounds like. Animals that live and move close to the ground, like crickets, beetles, spiders, worms, snakes, frogs, lizards, turtles, mice, moles, and groundhogs. Then we have beasts of the earth. And this is another Hebrew word. It's different than the first one uh, for land creatures, but it could refer to all animals. But usually, or frequently, it is used to speak of large wild animals. So we're probably talking about cats, dogs, bears, elephants, apes, monkeys, and various kinds of land dinosaurs, and, and more. Now notice that these categories of land animals they do not exactly correspond to modern classifications, like mammal, reptile, or arachnid. But that's okay. Hebrews had a right to classify animals in their own way. There's nothing wrong with their categorizations necessarily, but don't miss the main point. The various categorization of these animals are all illustrating that God made them all. God made all the land animals. God made all the sea creatures. And God made all the flying creatures. And he made the, the sea and flying creatures on day five, and the land animals on day six. But notice, before we get to the final act of creation, mentioned in the text, notice that phrase that keeps on appearing, after their kind, or after its kind, seven times in the passage that we just read, and three times before that when talking about plants. We've already said a few things about this phrase. We'll say a little bit more a little bit later. Now, separate from this creation of land animals and functioning as the climax of the creation process is the creation of man on day six. And notice what makes man distinct from the other creatures, verses 26 to 28. We're told that man is created in the image and likeness of God. This is not true of any of the other animals, but it is true of man. Now, what's very interesting about this revelation is, you may notice, when God expresses this quality about man before he creates him, God speaks in plural. 
Let us create man in our image and in our likeness. A plural first person used a plural first person pronoun used to describe God. Now that's very poignant. And we'll come back to that. We're just observing right now, though. So notice that man is created in the image and likeness of God, and man is given dominion. He's given dominion over the earth and all its animals, land, sea, and air. This, again, is not true of any of the other animals. <clears throat> we think of lions being the king of the jungle, but they're not created as kings. Man was created as king, in a sense, over the other animals and over the earth. God gave man dominion. Now, what is it, though, that this that man and the animals will eat? Notice God's ready and generous provision in verses 29 to 31. God says that all the plants, all the fruit trees are to be food for man and for the land animals and for the flying creatures. And more specifically, anything that moves and has life on the earth, they're going to be eating plants. That would include the sea creatures, too. And notice how God viewed his work at the end of days five and six. Verse 21 says at the end of day five that God saw that it, it was good. And then verse 31 describes God's view of all he had done over the six days. And the text says, behold, it was very good. Now, there's extra emphasis on this final phrase. Throughout the creation narrative, God has been commenting on each day of work, saying it is good. Behold, God saw that it was good. But now that the world is both formed and filled, it's not just good. It's very good. And actually, we have the word behold struck in the beginning part of it. That's an attention-grabbing word. Listen up. Look at this closely. It was very good. I think the author is trying to tell us something. So we've made some important observations on the text. That's always step one. We want to look at just the details. We want to look at the ob we'll make observations. But now let's move to the second step, interpretation. We want to answer a number of questions regarding the details we've seen. I'm actually going to skip the first one. Uh, I think someone might ask, hey, did sea creatures eat something different than land animals? Because they're not mentioned specifically when God talks about eating plants. But the verse does say, anything that has life and that moved on the earth. So that would include the sea creatures. But obviously, they're not jumping on the land to eat the trees or eat from the trees, but they had their own provision in the waters. So let's go to the second question. In verse 26, second question I have here, when it says, let us create man in our image, does this prove the doctrine of the Trinity? One God and three persons. Hmm, interesting thought. But we don't want to go too far with this. There's not enough explanation here to clearly reveal the triune nature of God. You can't point to verse 26 and be like, see, Trinity. All from this verse, you can get the whole doctrine of the Trinity. No, you can't. However, this verse does support the doctrine of the Trinity. Indeed, it's very difficult to explain this verse without the Trinity. I mean, think about it. For God to say, let us make man in our image, who else could he be speaking about except himself? The only other conceivable group would be God speaking to angels. But the Bible, and even the Old Testament, is consistent in saying that man is made in the image of God, not the image of angels, nor the image of God and angels. Moreover, angels are never said to create anything, though they do serve God and his creation, and they praise God for what God has accomplished in creation. So we can't be talking about angels, and it can't be God simply using a royal we 
a plural of majesty to describe himself. God could take up such a stance. You've probably heard or seen kings throughout history, rulers throughout history speak of themselves as if they were plural, even though they're only referring to themselves singularly and individually. God could do the same thing. He's the king of kings. But God doesn't usually do this. If we look at the way that God described himself throughout the Bible, it's almost always in singular terms, at least in the Old Testament. He says, have no other gods before me, not before us. And God says, for my name, I will act, not for our name. And he says, I will go before you to the people of Israel, not we will go before you. So God doesn't have a habit of speaking in a royal we. So it would be quite arbitrary for God to use that here when he doesn't elsewhere. So it can't be a plural of majesty. It can't be God speaking by angels. So what do we do with this? We're still stuck with this plural pronoun for a singular being. Let us make man in our image. What could possibly resolve this? What could explain this except the doctrine of the Trinity? This verse then becomes one of the first foreshadowings of the revelation of God as triune in the Bible. I'm sure the ancient Hebrews were quite puzzled over this statement, wondering how to reconcile a plurality in God. Now, it doesn't say three here. It just says a plurality. A plurality in God with his clear and insistent singularity. You know that verse from uh, the Torah. Hear, O Israel, behold our God. Behold, Yahweh is one. Behold, our God, Yahweh, Yahweh is one. God is so insistent about it. He's the only God, and yet we have this statement. doesn't really make much sense unless you understand the Trinity. Now, God doesn't reveal this answer right away, but more clues would appear in the Bible as God's revelation unfolds, as God's redemptive plan unfolds. And we'll see more and more about the Trinity, especially when it comes to the angel of the Lord in the Old Testament, but it becomes much plainer in the New Testament. So verse 26 doesn't prove the Trinity, but it does support the Trinity. Now here's a bigger question. What does it mean that God made man in God's image? Now here's a question that's been pondered throughout the centuries. Before I attempt to answer it, do note that both male and female were created in the image of God. Women are not any less made in the image of God than men, even though man's even though males were created first, Adam was created first, women are not any less the image of God. I think you could even say that together, man and woman display the image of God in fuller fashion. If there were no women, we wouldn't see the image of God as clearly. We need both. But what does it mean to be made in the image of God? There are a few ways we could attempt to answer this question. We could say that man is made physically in the image of God. That is to say that man was made literally to look like God because God has a body or has a, a likeness similar to our own. Now, such would seem to fit with how we intuit terms like image and likeness. And image sounds visual. Likeness sounds visual. These sound like physical terms. Such would also fit with certain descriptions used in the Old Testament and the New Testament describing God's arms, his hands, his face, and his back. Mormons even go so far as to take this position, supposing that God the Father indeed has a human form and a body. But the image of God cannot refer to a physical form. And that's made clear in the rest of Scripture. 
In the Ten Commandments, for instance, God forbids any image to be made of him, presumably because no image can capture or represent him properly. This would seem very arbitrary and nonsensical if God actually had a body that could be represented. John 4.24, even more explicitly in the New Testament, says that God is spirit. And spirit doesn't have physical form. Over Colossians 1.15, Colossians 1.15 further says that God is invisible. So these references, along with other aspects we see in the scriptures, shows that God doesn't have a physical body. doesn't look like us physically. Moreover, the references to God's body parts in the Bible, they are what we call anthropomorphisms. Anthropomorphisms. That just means a type of figurative language where a non-human being or object is ascribed human characteristics in order to make a point. So when God says in the Old Testament, is my arm too short to save? He's not revealing that he has long arms, literally, but he's saying that my power is never insufficient to accomplish my will and to keep covenant with you. So he's making a point using an analogy or a metaphor from the human body. So the image of God is not physical. Being made in the image of God doesn't refer to something physical. Another way to answer the question would be to suggest that being made in the image of God refers to man's inner person. We don't reflect God in physical nature, but in the inner person, man reflects the being and attributes of God. I remember what we mean by attributes, the, the perfections, the essence of God. Those things that we describe as love and wisdom and holiness and mercy, things that totally make up who God is. In making us in his image, God chose to give us attributes reminiscent of his own, almost like a physical likeness, but in an inner person sense. God loves. God is love. And so we also love, though less greatly than God. God has wisdom. We have wisdom, though in much less measure. God has existence. We have existence, though not eternally like God. God is creative. We are creative, though not as creative as God. God is relational. We are relational. God loves unity and diversity. We love unity and diversity. God values beauty. We value beauty, and so forth. So we have been, in being made in God's image, we, are, we have God's perfections, God's attributes imprinted and reflected in us. Not to the same level as God, but in a way reminiscent of God. Indeed, we need to have some level of God's attributes in order for us to appreciate, to enjoy, and to worship God for who he is. Not that God needed us to do that. Remember, God says throughout the Bible that he says, I don't need anything from you. But God chose to make man in a certain way that would advance what God loves most of all, which is to give himself glory, to enjoy his own glory. And one of the ways he chose to do that was to make man able to appreciate God by being made in God's image, reflecting who God is and being able to appreciate it. Now, certainly this is part of the answer of what it means to be made in the image of God. The inner man is part of what it means to be made in God's image. But I think there's another aspect to it. There's a third way we can answer this question, and I think it contains the second way, but both are important. We could also say to be made in God's image or to be made in God's image is to be a representative of his rule. 
notice, if we go back to our text here in Genesis 1, surrounding this declaration of intent from God to make man in his image is the concept of rule. God says, let us make man in our image and have him rule. And we would expect that whatever clues there are as to what being made in the image of God means, they would appear in the context, right? And the context here is ruling. Uh, throughout verses 26 and following. Rule, then, dominion, then, apparently has something to do with being made in the image of God. And actually, this makes sense, considering what we've already discussed in the second answer. Is not sovereignty, rule, power, dominion, aren't these also attribute in God, or attribute of God, a perfection of God? God is sovereign as ruler. So man as a reflection of God, is made sovereign also, but only as an under-ruler. Now, why have man as ruler? Why install man as a deputy ruler over God's creation, as a representative ruler? In answer, some have noted how, in ancient times, kings would create literal images of themselves, statutes, and set them up throughout their kingdoms, throughout their dominions. These standing images, they not only reminded the subjects of the king of who the king was and what he looked like, but the images also were a statement that the king had full authority over the land and the people around where the image was. Now, such an idea would fit with how God made man in God's image. Man is like a statue, an image of God, figuratively, not physically, reflecting both who the ruling God is, who the actual God is, but also testifying that as the true king, that he is the true king of the world and all the universe. It's an assertion of God's authority and partly a revelation of who he is. And thinking about the Bible as a whole and the revelation that we have received, thinking about how history has played out, one way to boil it all down to describe it is to say the history of the world is about God establishing his holy kingship over all the created universe. You could describe everything that happens in history as God establishing his rule. That is one way to see it. And here, right at the beginning, we see that concept in man being made in God's image. God's rule is being asserted in the images he is setting up, living images that reveal in a derived sense who the real king is. I think the best way to answer this question of what does it mean to be made in the image of God is this third answer containing the second answer. Being made in the image of God means to reflect the being and rule of God as an under ruler. Now, this truth has implications. Because the Bible does say explicitly a few times that because man is made in God's image, sinful actions taken against men are actually direct affronts to God. We see this most clearly in two places, Genesis 9-6. Genesis 9-6, this is after the flood. Remember, one of the things that God decried about man before the flood is that he was so violent. And that goes back to Cain, right, who slew his brother. But Genesis 9-6 says, Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For, what's the reason? In the image of God, he made man. There's a connection. You commit violence against another person. You are violating what God did in creating man in, the, in his image. Or James. 
James chapter 3, verses 8 to 10. James 3, 8 to 10, James says, but no one can tame the tongue. Remember, he's talking about speech in that chapter. It is a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father, and with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. From the same mouth come both blessing and cursing. My brethren, these things ought not to be this way. James makes clear that even speaking against a man, a person, is an affront to God because man was made in God's image. I mean, think about it. If you, if we go back to this idea of kings setting up images in ancient times, if you mocked, if you graffitied, if you defaced, or if you destroyed a king's image in ancient times, you were, by your actions, showing contempt for the king himself, who was represented by the image. And if you were caught, you would be severely punished. So it is with all those who speak against, harm, or destroy God's image and man. God will require it of each offender. You see, man has been created with a certain dignity. And that dignity must not be violated, either by word or by deed. This dignity does not come from man himself. Man deserves, only be, man deserves honor only because God deserves honor. And because God made man in God's image. It's the same concept behind why we honor parents, why children are to obey their parents. Is it because your parents deserve it? Because they have this innate quality of needing obedience and reverence? No, it has something to do with God. God gave them authority. And so when you honor your parents, you honor God. And you dishonor your parents, you dishonor God. God has given the office dignity, and that's why we honor it. The same thing with authorities in general. Back to this idea of man being made in God's image. Ask yourselves, before we move on in a lesson, just a little time of application here. How do you regard the image of God as displayed in those around you? Those that you encounter in your life. Do you treat certain people of no account, forgetting that they too are made in the image of God? What about homeless people? What about children? What about babies? What about unborn children? What about criminals? What about government leaders? Celebrities? Men? Women? People of different ethnicity? Unbelievers? Fellow Christians? Your family members? Do you regard them all with the dignity that is due someone who bears the image of God? Do you speak hateful and corrupting words against others, not remembering that you are cursing God's very image? Do you even move to strike and physically harm another person, thus striking the very image of God's own sovereign rule? Remember that you will give an account to God for how you treated those made in his image. Even though God's image has become marred due to man's fall into sin. You look at some people and you say, he doesn't deserve honor. Look at what an evil person he is. Well, yes, by himself he doesn't. But he was made in the image of God. Therefore, show that person honor because you show God honor. Our image, the image of God, has indeed become marred in us through the fall. Nevertheless, if we trace this concept of the image of God, it's actually theologically quite interesting because 
someone came to perfectly reveal God, who was the perfect image of God. Who's that? Jesus Christ. And he's described such in the New Testament. Praise God for the one who is the perfect image, Jesus Christ, and who renews us in his image. Not just the image of God, but the image of Christ. It's actually a redemptive theme when it comes to the image of God. I should also note that man's being made in the image of God is another detail that disproves the evolutionary view. I mean, think about it. How does the secular scientist categorize man in relation to animals? Go ahead and answer this question for me. How does the secular scientist or the secular person categorize man in relation to animals? What do you think? That's right. Man is just another animal. It may be more clever, more advanced, able to use technology, but basically he's just an animal. That's why man does what he does. He can't help it. It's just evolutionary holdovers. He's just an animal in the end. But the Bible reveals that man is not an animal, not even a highly evolved animal. Man is a unique creation of God. He's the crowning act of God's creative work. He's the one given dominion as an underruler of God and as one made to reflect and represent God's own character and rule. Now, animals do have some value. God cares about animals. He says a sparrow doesn't fall to the ground without his care about it. And when God spared Nineveh from destruction, he said, there's a bunch of animals in that city besides people. Don't you have any compassion on them? But man has magnitudes more value than an animal. However, animals may act without moral restraints. They are not subject to moral judgment. I mean, we can get maybe mad at our pets a little bit and say, oh, why did you do that? But it's just an animal. It doesn't know right from wrong. It's just an animal. But man is no animal. Man is responsible for his actions, for he represents and he responds to God's rule. Thus, unlike animals, all men and women will have to give an account of themselves to God, their creator. Now, there's one other issue I want to return to you with you from this passage, and that's the concept of kinds. How is it significant that God made the animals according to each kind? As we said last week, the kinds of Genesis 1, that language of kind, this is a testimony to how God designed both plants and animals to reproduce only according to certain parameters. Though there will be variation in a kind, no plant or animal will ever change kinds. Otherwise, the concept of a kind doesn't make sense. But what exactly is a kind? Now, here's where we want to watch a short video from Answers in Genesis on kinds. It is only about two minutes, but I think it's a good, concise explanation as to how to view kinds as expressed in Genesis, and especially as related to animals. So let's go ahead and queue up that video, watch it, and we'll make some comments on it. The universe displays incredible variety. Consider snowflakes. Every one is different. Every cloud is different. Every planet, every galaxy is different. 
This variety is just as visible among organisms. Every individual is different from every other individual. Every giraffe has a unique pattern. Every zebra has distinct stripes. Every dog has a distinct personality. And every human is different from every other. Despite all this variety, it's easy to see which of these belong in the same group. As different as deer are from each other, we still recognize them as deer. As different as finches are from each other, we still recognize them as finches. The same is true of plants. There are thousands of species of orchids and thousands of species of grass, but we still call them orchids and grass. Modern scientists call each of these groups families. The Bible gives a clue about the origin of such variety. Genesis 1 says that God created distinct organisms after their kind. In fact, he uses this phrase, after its kind or after their kind, ten times in the creation account. What does the biblical term kind refer to? It is possible that in most instances, these kinds are the groups of similar species that scientists recognize today as families. If so, God made an orchid kind, a grass kind, a deer kind, a finch kind, and many others. Within these kinds, he placed potential for amazing variety. The creation of similar things with differences demonstrates that God loves variety and God loves unity. The best explanation for this is God's very nature, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit, three persons in one, loves both diversity and unity. Very good. Now, I, I do love that video for a lot of different insights, but I, I appreciate that one at the end, that it, creation all ultimately goes back to God, right? Creation declares the glory of God. And so even when we look at the unity and diversity that is evident in creation, we see this as a reflection of God himself to a certain extent. And it's not just in how God created animals but also in how God created marriage and how God created the church, how God created the family. There's still this idea of oneness, but also uniqueness, diversity, and unity. Everything that is in God is good. And God is both one and three. And so it makes sense that his creation would also reflect that good character, that good attribute. Because as God said, what he made is very good. It's a reflection of himself. Now, this concept of kinds and unity, diversity, it, I think, exposes that fundamental error in evolutionary theory. Remember that the evolutionist, the secular evolutionary-minded scientist, he observes small variation within a kind of animals, say finches, a certain type of bird, and he observes how certain favorable genetic traits become dominant in finches due to success in a certain environment, what scientists would call natural selection. They observe this variation, they observe this natural selection, and based on these small changes within a kind, the evolutionary scientist asserts that plants, animals, and people are capable of big changes, even changing whole kinds. This is the difference between what is distinguished as microevolution, variation within a kind, 
and macroevolution, variation between kinds, transcending kinds. The former, microevolution, despite the term maybe having some negative connotations for us, it actually is observable. It's understandable. It's even biblical. But the latter, macroevolution, has never been observed. It makes no sense, and it does not fit with the Bible because God created creatures and plants according to kind and to reproduce according to kind. Just because a kind can vary does not mean that it can transform into a whole new kind. See, that's the leap that an evolutionist makes. That's just, it does not follow logically. We'll talk more about these concepts, natural selection, evolution, macroevolution, etc., as we go along talking about creation. But let me emphasize for now that people, scientists included, they often underestimate just how much variety God has programmed into the originally created kinds or families of animals. Now, we're going to actually illustrate this with a little short activity. I pointed out to you last time the great variation in peppers, onions, grains, beans that we see today, even though they're only several kinds of plants. But let's see how this works with animals. I'm going to list, I'm displaying a list here for you of a number of different animals on the screen. Try to figure out in your mind how many true kinds or families of animals we actually have among the list of list or among the list of animals that are for you. So here's our list. We have the wolf, the leopard, the camel, the coyote, the llama, the tiger, the cougar, the jackal, the bobcat, the alpaca, the lion, the black lab, and the house cat. Take a minute, just think to yourself, try and organize in your head what are the different families or kinds of these animals. I'll give you a minute. All right, you might not need a whole minute, so I'll actually come back to this. So we have 13 animals here, but how many kinds? What do you think? Yeah, it's three. Now, what are the kinds? All right, so we have the dog kind. That would include the wolf, the coyote, the jackal, and the black lab. We have the cat kind, the leopard, the tiger, the cougar, the bobcat, the lion, and the house cat. And then we have the camelid kind. Yes, that's actually a name, camelid, and that would include the camel, the llama, and the alpaca. You may have been surprised by that last category, maybe didn't know the name, but camels and llamas are actually part of the same group, and they can interbreed. And this is because they're part of the same family or kind. This ability to breed, what scientists call hybridization, and the similarity in physical characteristics are two ways that we are able to classify animals according to their kind or according to their families. So I were able to identify a cat kind, a dog kind, and a camelid kind. Now it is interesting. This is a side note. Variation within kinds can become sometimes so great 
that two of the same kind are no longer able to breed or they only have limited reproduction ability. Some of you may know that, for instance, donkeys and horses can interbreed. They're part of the same kind. But what's the problem with their progeny? They're sterile. They can't reproduce, usually. Same thing with a lion and a tiger. They can interbreed, which makes sense. They're part of the same cat kind. They have the same physical characteristics, and they're able to produce uh, a liger, or I think there's another name for it, depending on which is the male, which is the female. But again, the offspring is usually sterile, usually not able to reproduce. So apparently, this is one of the, over the, the hundreds of years, the thousands of years that these animals have been on the earth, as they have continued to vary within their own kind, sometimes that variation gets so great that they have only limited ability to reproduce with those who are far removed from them in variation within their kind. Still, this does point to a time when the horse kind and the cat kind and all the other kinds were not so varied. And so you could have animals able to breed together within that kind and not be limited in any way when it came to reproduction. But this is, this is part of the main point I'm wanting to emphasize. We have many different species today, many different animals, lots of variation within those kinds. I mean, just consider the difference between a house cat and a lion. I mean, that's huge. But there's still only a few kinds. Now, this great variety that we see observed, even to the point of not being able to, to fully reproduce with another the same in, within the same kind for those animals, this just shows the way that God created living things, reproducing according to kind and with great variation. As we saw last week, all this that we can observe does not describe an evolutionary tree of life, but an orchard of life, orchard that is able to start from various, or start all in different places, but then branch out in different directions. So let's summarize what we've seen today. We saw what happened on days five and six. Most basically on day five, God made the sea and flying creatures. On day six, God made the land animals and man. We examine what it means to be made in the image of God. God imprinted a measure of his attributes in man and commissioned man as an under ruler and a testimony to God's perfect and total rule. We also consider the significance of animal kinds. Great variation, but still limited reproduction according to kind, and not evolution, not the macroevolution that can change kinds. Now, with our last bit of time today, let's consider a few application items. Here are a few questions I've come up with. Number one, Sometimes people think it is merciful to abort a child who will be born with health problems or with a genetic disorder such as Down syndrome. How does what we looked at today speak to this issue? What do you think? Yes, Ron. It doesn't, it doesn't matter if they're limited or hindered in a certain physical way. They're still made in the image of God. They still deserve that dignity that any man or woman uh, deserves. This is not about whether the person innately deserves it or that they're super healthy. And so 
they deserve it. This is about God. This is another reason why abortion is such an evil. I remember reading not too long ago that it was one of the Scandinavian countries, maybe it was Sweden, they had boasted that they had eliminated Down syndrome from their country. There's no more Down syndrome. But the way that they had done that was they, they had aborted all the children who have Down syndrome. That's horrible. And there's a very moving testimony of a Down syndrome man. I think he actually went before Congress and he says, you know, I'm just as much worthy of life as anyone. So there's no reason for an abortion uh, just because someone is limited. And the same thing for euthanasia and all those other issues. When you, when you recognize the image of God in someone, these sins that we see in our world, so prevalent in our world, they make no sense, and, and we see them for the offense that they really are. Every, every person, even an infant, even an unborn child, is made in the image of God and deserves to be treated as such. Here's another question. If someone is convinced that the Bible and evolution are compatible, what is the best way to reason with him? What do you think? I think the answer is maybe simpler than maybe it appears. Just use the Bible. Somebody is a theistic evolutionist to say, oh, I think God used evolution to create man. Just show him what the Bible actually says. Because as we go through this, I, I hope you're seeing that again and again, we just run into things that say, okay, and this is why evolution can't be true because of what the Bible says. This is why an old earth ultimately doesn't make sense. A super old earth. I mean, the earth is old, but not as old as secular modern theory asserts. Just show them the Bible. The Bible is the ultimate authority for truth. It's totally trustworthy. So, of course, it makes sense to go to the Bible. Here's another question. I began to allude to this a little bit earlier. How might a discussion of the image of God in a person lead to the gospel? You happen to get in a conversation about the image of God or just talking about the dignity of man. Oh, yes. Yeah. Uh, in the front. Okay, I heard, uh, I think the, the gist of what you're saying here came across a little bit soft to me. And sorry, you're a little bit blurred on my side of the screen, so I couldn't recognize you first, but now, now I know who that is, so it's a sign. But yeah, thank you for that. That is one way that we can uh, use the image of God to, to talk ultimately about the gospel, is just bring, bring back the idea of sovereignty. God knows what he's doing, even in a person who seems physically marred or genetically handicapped. God knows what he's doing because it's the same thing with that man who was born blind in the Bible. But we ultimately are beholden to this God. We don't have control even over the 
the image as God makes it. God is the one who decides what happens in the womb. God is the one that decides what happens in life. And we ultimately must be reconciled with this God. I think that's one aspect of how we can use the image of God to talk about the gospel. I think the image of God, just pointing out how the image of God is manifest in our world and in a person, that leads directly to God. And that leads to what God has done in history. And again, you can even just use the idea of image, just trace that theme throughout the Bible, and you basically have the gospel. We were made in the image of God in creation, made to reflect and to rule on behalf of God. But what did we do? We rebelled, and the image of God became marred in us. We became cursed. And so we needed another person, not only to perfectly represent the image of God, but also to save us for what we've done to the image of God. And that's what God provided in Jesus Christ. He is the Uh, he is the perfect image of God. He is, and the fullness of deity dwells in him. Everything that is God is in in Jesus Christ. And he came and he he lived and died in order to save those who would believe in him from their sins. And then renew them unto God's image so they would walk in new life. So basically, if you just talk about the image of God or even in the most fundamental sense, you show that, hey, look, this thing that you're doing, it's because you're made in the image of God. Therefore, you must be made right with him. I think those are good ways that we can just use this concept to get back to the gospel. That's only what we want to do. One more question. How should seeing the way God created animals and man affect us? Well, this, this is a very broad question. We could spend a lot of time talking about this, but I hope you're seeing that this is another way we should be provoked to awe, to praise, to thanks. Just look at the amazing wisdom and creativity of God and how he created the kinds. If you saw in the video all the different spider kinds, you have tarantulas, you have black widows, you have those, those spiders that can jump. I don't know what they're called, but such variation, such amazing ability, and yet all from one kind. Or think of different kinds of dogs or even the different kind of people we're all the same kind we're all one race and yet there's such variation it is as the human it is as the video says personality wise but even in appearance every human is unique and this is all displaying the great wisdom of god the great wisdom and power and creativity of god not to even mention the cosmos have you ever looked at images images of outer space you see such great beauty the galaxies that the Hubble telescope is able to get images of. Hundreds and thousands of galaxies just in one little snapshot of one sector of the sky. All of this displaying the wonder of God and the power of God. And this is the God to whom we must, uh, to whom we have to do. We must obey this God. We must be reconciled to this God. We must worship this God and we must trust this God. Creation is pointing us. The account of creation as we have in Genesis 1 is pointing us to these things. So I hope you will meditate on that today. Now, I I happened to glance at my email while the video was showing, and I saw that somebody asked a question related to the Sunday School lesson already. And the question is, how did the rabbis, how did the Jewish leaders and teachers deal with the passage in Genesis 1 when when it comes to the Trinity? I'm not aware of the answer to that question. I'd be interested to find that out. And if I do, I will I'll mention it next time. But certainly that would have been a difficulty. How do you deal with that plurality? But remember, and I think we did trace this in another Sunday school class, 
the concept of the Trinity is pretty, though it's not fully explained, it comes up again and again in the Old Testament, where we have those messianic passages. The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus points out in the New Testament, how can David say this if the Messiah is his son? The Pharisees didn't know what to do with that. It's only because, well, this is God the Father speaking to God the Son. Or I mentioned the idea of the angel of the Lord. Angel of the Lord is shown to be separate from God and yet to be God at the same time. Likely the Jews, and again, I, I... I'd have to look up more specifically what they said about these things, but likely they, they affirm them both without being able fully to explain it. Yes, the angel of the Lord is clearly God here, but he's also speaking on behalf of God as a messenger. So that is an interesting question one I'd have to look more into. Any other questions or comments on today's class? Yeah, Josiah. Yeah, yeah, that's a great point. If God is able to make it, then he must be so much greater than that. Yeah, and it is interesting the way that God created man, right? It's, it's just thinking of, just meditating on that. Man is created completely vulnerable, right? I think I heard one time someone saying that all other animals, when they give birth, they're, they're young, are able to get going pretty quickly, but not humans. Humans, when they're born... <laughs> Little babies, they can't do anything. If they're abandoned, they won't survive, which is sometimes not true of other animals. And why did God do that? God doesn't tell us specifically in the scriptures, but I think going back to even some of the things that you're mentioning, Josiah, this is to show us God wants you to be dependent on him. Even when you're born, you can't do anything. You think you're so strong. God made a lot of other creatures stronger than you. In fact, any of those creatures... Not any of those creatures, but many of those creatures could harm you and kill you. Why do you think God did that? God didn't make you all powerful. Why? Because he wants you to depend on him. Again, I'm filling in some of the details of the scripture, but I think, yeah, that's another way to get back to the gospel and to see God reflecting himself in creation. Other, maybe one more question or comment. Yes, in the back. I think is that Roy? Yeah, go ahead. Hmm. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
Yeah. 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 Thanks for bringing that up, Roy. I think that is another thing that, though not identified specifically in chapter one, that man is unique in his inner man and that it continues. Man is not eternal in the sense that man had a beginning. God never had a beginning. But man will continue as God will continue, even after man dies. Now, in terms of the term translated soul in chapter two, nefesh, if I remember correctly, it is a little interesting that the term is also used for animals. They do have a, they do, they are said to have a nefesh, but we do recognize from other scriptures that there is a difference between animals and man and that animals are not made in the image of God. And there's no indication that animals are going to continue after, after they die in the earth. Now, I hope I'm not misspeaking, but I, I think I remember that being correct. Not necessarily Genesis 2 telling us, but other, other passages that will speak about anything that is living, any living thing has a, a nefesh, which is interesting because plants don't. And this is part of the reason why we would say, sometimes people say, oh, there had to be death before the fall because people are eating plants and plants die. Well, the Bible doesn't talk about plants being alive in the same way that animals and man are alive. Animals or plants don't have the nefesh. But that whole discussion aside, man is unique in his spirit and his soul, and that it will continue eternally, and that even has, that corresponds with the ideas of reward and judgment. Good, good questions, good comments. We're out of time for today. If you have other questions or comments, you can email me. Next week, we are coming back to talk more about the creation of man, because as Roy was already alluding, we have another we have an expanded account of man's creation in Genesis 2, and that also is going to be very instructive, as is the origin of man, the origin of male and female, and the origin of marriage. So hope you'll be back for that. Let's close our time in prayer. Lord God, we thank you for your revelation of creation. Thank you, God. You have displayed your wondrous being in the wonders of creation. Yes, it has been marred. Yes, it is cursed now. But originally, it was so good. It was very good. And we're looking forward to a time when it is even better than it originally was. Because you will dwell with us on the earth without sin, without any pain or grief or evil. Lord, we look forward to that day. Bring that day, we pray, God. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you all. I'll see you next week.